0: Welcome back to Basic Brain Heart, the show where we celebrate and interrogate creatives of all stripes. I'm Hannah Camacho. Now I have to tell you, a couple months ago I was in the theater, uh, minding my own business, watching some trailers, when suddenly there was a trailer that came on that honestly I kind of stopped paying attention to because I was so enraptured by the music that accompanied it. And so I did a little bit of digging and the song itself is called Revolution and I wanted to see who was behind it so um, i saw that this group called unsecret was behind it and i checked out more of their music fell in love with it my husband and i rarely agree on our musical tastes but we both were just loving everything that we could find by unsecret so i wanted to dig and see who was behind this stuff and um a lovely gentleman named matt bronlewy reached out back turns out Matt is a very experienced musician, um, he helped to start the band Jars of Clay and has had a hand in uh, just about every Christian music band you've ever heard of, um, is well respected and just so, so generous and kind. Not only that, I found out that Matt is an author, he's a writer, so he's multidisciplined and is very, very good at honing each craft that he's developed. So I could not wait to have him on the show. and. Just as a little bit of a preview, um, he shares so much about how he feels building a creative community around yourself is really important. Not only that, but just appreciating the randomness of life and how inspiration can come from anywhere um, and how the long game is really where it's at. And and really, again, those Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours is hugely important when it comes to creative success. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the episode because we play one of Matt's lovely compositions. All right, well, you're not here to hear me talk, so I'm going to get out of the way. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with musician and writer Matt Bronley. Well, Matt, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I've been um, immersing myself in your work, and I'm so fascinated by what you're doing at Unsecret, so thank you for taking the time to chat with me today.
1: Oh, no, this is great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And one thing I'm really looking forward to getting into is um, you as a a creative artist, because I know that you are multidisciplined, and that's something that we haven't necessarily gotten into. Within the podcast, a lot of people have a laser focus on one discipline. So I can't wait to get started there. But before we kind of dive into your backstory, can you tell me a little bit about what you're up to today?
1: Yeah. Do you mean actually today?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) you could be as literal (laughs) or as broad
1: (laughs) as you like. (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, I do tend to have a, a number of things swirling all at the same time. Um, I think some of that is just my personality. You know, I'm, I'm definitely driven by a lot of interaction, a lot of collaboration. Um, so I like to keep a lot of plates spinning. Um, these days, you know, I think that ends up being kind of a good thing, too. Just you never kind of know what's going to take off or what might falter. Um, I'm really focused on music for film and television right now. That's a big focus for me. Um, I'm also in the midst of starting to write, write um a script for a movie that I'm working on with some people, uh, and I've got some uh, book stuff I'm kind of got on the back burner that I continue to work on too.
0: That's so cool. So I'm really interested, and I'm one thing. A lot of times when, when I interview someone, I'm able to find some you know, some part of their backstory and that's not necessarily something that I was able to come across for you. So I'm really extra interested in hearing about your early life, sort of your origin story, where you come from and when you started to pursue creative, you know, artistry.
1: Yeah, I grew up um, on a wheat farm in the middle of Kansas. And, the, you know, the further I get from that, I feel like the more objectivity I have about it. And I really think it was a fertile uh, ground for kind of birthing what ended up being um, a multi-disciplined kind of look at, at life and creativity. Um, yeah, I, I was on this little farm, little bitty towns kind of around. Uh, the high school had less than 100 people in it. Um, my graduating class, like 16 or 17, very small. Um, and so, you know, you look at that from the outside and you'd think limited opportunity. You know, you'd look at it and you'd say, okay, there's nothing to do there. What are you going to do? But what it ended up creating was an environment where you had to do everything. Like you literally had to be involved in everything or it didn't take off. So it didn't matter if you didn't want to do uh, basketball. It didn't matter if you didn't want to be on the math team or do a play. Or whatever. Like you had to or or it just wouldn't happen. So, you know, there, there weren't tryouts. There weren't like um, – you know, you didn't have to go and say, like, oh, you know, I'd love this part or whatever. They, it was just kind of expected, like, hey, you know, you're a senior. You know, here's the 12 things you're going to be involved in. And, uh, and and so at the time, it felt like, you know, you just were always, you know, trying to keep up with everything and, and even trying to learn how to do these this kind of multitude of things. Uh, but I think it kind of started, you know, the whole process for me of, of like, you um, you know that renaissance type kind of life that renaissance kind of character uh where you're interested in a little bit of everything
0: absolutely and when did that leave time for you to to do what you were actually interested in because it sounds like some of the time you probably had to do things that maybe weren't so interesting or fun or exciting for you personally did you start yeah. to notice that you you had kind of that artist's heart early on
1: yeah i you know i told um I told my parents when I was 16 that I wanted to be a professional musician. And, you know, I think, I mean, looking back, it was kind of amazing that they listened to me at all. Because, I mean, we were we were literally in the middle of kind of nowhere. And, in fact, you know, when I travel back and, and, and uh, you know, kind of see everything, out it just feels like a million miles away from, you know, a New York or an L.A. or a Nashville or, wherever, like, these kind of epicenters of where you need to be. Um, but it's like I, I had that kind of dream in my mind of, like, someday going to these places. But, you know, I think I was kind of delusional about how good I was. <laughs> so, like, you know, that's that's the other thing when you grow up in an environment like that where – I would, I was literally the only place, person that played electric guitar, like, I think, in the entire high school. <laughs> so,
0: obviously, you were amazing. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. I got to be the best guitar player because I was the only guitar player. <laughs> so, you know, you, you get this kind of notion that you're like, hey, I can, I can do this. Like, I can hang with this. Um, and then it's not only until later that you kind of fall in with these other crowds where you see the level of professionalism that's required um, which can be both kind of disconcerting, uh, but then also can be inspiring to help you kind of elevate your craft.
0: Yeah, totally. So at the age of 16, you started taking that really seriously. Once you got to college age, did you choose to go to college and, and study music or what was your path kind of at that point?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, I, I went, I didn't end up going long. I only got a couple of years in, but I ended up going to a college called Greenville College, which is about 50 miles east of St. Louis. And um, they had uh, a music major there and they had studios there. And I'd never, I'd never seen a studio. I'd never stepped foot in a studio. So even just having that available, I mean, my mind was blown. Um, it's interesting though, because it's like, I think, you know, looking back, I think the first thing I was excited about was the availability of, uh, you know, the studio and all these different things. But looking, you know, with more perspective now, I realized that that stuff was so secondary to the relationships that were built um, and to the camaraderie and to the collaborations that began to happen there. Um, That's, you know, that's the true power of those types of environments. It's not you know, that they have like a better studio than the place down the street. It's, you know, what is, what is the community that they're building?
0: And did you kind of see music and that community as your plan A and your only plan, or did you have to fall back on something else to sort of um, pay the bills while you were trying to figure it all out?
1: Um, Well, I mean, it was kind of crazy. It was like my, my freshman year, uh, uh, my my roommate was this guy, Charlie Lowell. And then right next door to me uh, was this guy, Dan Hasseltine. And the three of us began to do some music together. Um, and then my my sophomore year, we started what ended up uh, becoming Jars of Clay, um, a, a band that ended up doing like really well back years ago. And it's like um, that began kind of a I, – I wasn't with the band for a long time, but I was with them kind of long enough just to see the launch of things and to have some songwriting. Um, and that's so that was like a really early kind of introduction. I think I was nineteen, and so um, that just gave me uh, a rocket boost. That you know was very very fortunate, like such a blessing. Yeah. So it was kind of the beginning. Um, but then you know I ended up I ended up leaving the band. I, I really felt like I didn't want to be on the road. Um, that wasn't like I, I saw myself more as a songwriter and a studio guy and. I just didn't, the the life of like being on buses all the time and everything, there was, I mean, there was something very cool about that, but um, I don't know. It's like, I feel like I had this little glimpse of the future of like, what, what would this be like though? And if this was for real, if this was actually going to happen and take off, like what, what would that mean in five years and in 20 years? Um, So I feel like I was given a little glimpse of that. And, and that, made me kind of retreat from, from that path and, and kind of go on this other path.
0: It's interesting that you're paying really close attention, to, even at that point, um, creatively what kind of satisfied you and what didn't satisfy you. I think some people are really willing to put up the unsatisfactory portions and, and what they know isn't, isn't kind of their jam for way longer than maybe is healthy. Um, so I think yeah. that's really interesting that even at that point you were like, "You know what? I know I like this. I'm not so sure I love this part. Um, so what what was your path after you left the band in terms of continuing your musical journey?
1: Um, right af- right after I left the band, I actually uh, I got married, moved to northern Illinois for a year, and I was really completely out of any of the creative life kind of altogether. Um, I was actually pursuing. Uh, uh I was gonna go to a different college and was gonna pursue economics and thought that seemed real um, but kind of during that journey, I just had this total tug that led me right back into music. I started you know writing songs again and and so it was a very kind of short interim period that that all of a sudden I was like you know, I remember kind of sat down with my wife, like new wife too, you know, she was like, what is this guy, you know, do like, you know, we move this way I move this way. And I just told her, I was like, I feel like we need to move to Nashville. Like that's where our friends from college are. That's where the music scene is. Um, and, and luckily, um, you know, fortunately she was super supportive and, and just kind of saw that there might be something, um, bigger for us to kind of pursue with that and that kind of dream of moving to Nashville. And so, after only a year of being away in Northern Illinois, we moved to Nashville, um, and that really, you know, tra- changed the trajectory of things all over again.
0: So that seems to be a common theme in terms of, you know, relocation. Really, is super important if someone really, really wants to truly make a. A living out of their creative pursuit and so that seems to almost be something that's non-negotiable across the board really and truly you've got to relocate to those epicenters (laughs) do you have you ever tried or thought about um living elsewhere and trying to still make it work or do you feel like that's an insurmountable um challenge
1: like moving to LA you know
0: who I mean maybe moving back to the you know the farmland of Kansas for instance you know and trying to make something like that work long distance from a rural area. Do you think that's, uh, for, maybe for someone who's just starting out? Right. You know, I think,
1: yeah, you know, I think for me, um, one of the real, and this is kind of jumping back to something I mentioned earlier. I feel like the community aspect is so vital and that's, that's difficult to replicate. You know, i because I think when people talk about these epicenters and even when they first jump into them, uh, this, because the thing that's talked about is like networking and, and opportunity and like that the businesses are there and all these things. And so, um, which is like such a crass way of kind of looking at it. And, and I get it. There There is a truth to that. You know, there is like a truth to these business institutions. uh which are rare, you know, they're rare to find and, and only, you know, you really only find the biggest kind of, you know, parts of that in LA and New York and Nashville and these other places like that. Um, but I feel like the thing that's kind of glossed over is like this idea that there's a community that you slowly begin to be, you know, become a part of. Um, that's the part that's hard to replicate elsewhere. You know,
0: No, that's a brilliant I, point.
1: I think it can be done though. And and you do see, you know, it's like sometimes, um, you know, you see these little pockets, these little collections, these things that begin to happen. I mean, I think if people are purposeful, um, those can happen anywhere, but they they require um, some time and attention uh, and they require, you know, a few, at least a few people all having similar goals and, and aspirations, I think. You know, I think the uh, you know, I've read some stuff about MIT back in the day and, and how it was this strange amalgamation of like all these different companies and people groups and, and but what it birthed was all this creativity through this randomness. And, and I think that's something that happens in the, these communities that I think isn't always kind of addressed. And, and it's not addressed much because it's, it's hard to kind of even, um, you know, uh, explain to people like how this occurs. But I'll, I'll literally walk into a coffee shop here in Nashville and bump into two or three people uh, that all have different things going on, and that'll spur something in me. You know, sometimes it spurs a new collaboration, a new angle of something I might be. And so it's real. That's another thing that's very hard to replicate elsewhere is just the random chance that you might run into another creative person that's that's doing something that inspires you. So, you know, I, I do think that occurs on. A lot of campuses. I think that's why, I like college campuses, are such a like vital and you know, uh, uh, vital place for those kind of things to occur. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sometimes hard to replicate in just uh, in, in these more kind of um, outlying areas, you know. Unfortunately, so you know, online is probably at you know changing that more every day
0: how do you think that your life experiences have informed your musical fingerprint? you kind of had this I've noticed at least in some of your recent work kind of an epic feel to it What do you attribute um your personal musical fingerprint to um you
1: know when I was a youngster like you know when I was like grade school kid uh you know classically my you know my mom had me take piano lessons and And I liked them up to a point, but then I reached, you know, I can't remember what grade it was. I was just like, I'm not, you know, as interested in this. And my mom kind of made a deal with me. She's like, hey, if you can talk to the piano teacher about what you'd like to play, you know, would you continue? And I was like, well, you know, yeah, let me, let's talk about that. So she got me this book of, uh, you know, it was like cinematic music. You know, it was like movie, movie scores for kids, basically. Um, And so I walked in and I was like, and I was like, "Listen, if I can, if you'll allow me to practice, you know, ET and Star Wars, and like it was basically all John Williams stuff. And uh, you know, if we can pursue that for a little while, I'll like I'll stick with piano. And um, you know, looking back, it was probably it was probably too bad because there was probably so you know such a there's a skill set that I didn't pursue or gain uh, because I went and kind of to, to this other thing. You know, I wasn't like sitting around doing like Beethoven or whatever, um, but what it immersed me in from an early age were, were these scores, and I just loved it, and I just loved John Williams, and and then to be able to walk into like a movie theater or, or you know at home with like the VHS tape or whatever like for me, and uh, and to see that you know like how how music was interacting with the visual and and really how both those things were like pointing towards some emotion. Um, that was extremely meaningful. And so now um, I I am doing a lot of music that seems to be kind of this blend of both highly cinematic, almost score-like backdrop um, with like uh, vocal and pop production and other things kind of. And it exists somewhere like kind of in between.
0: Yeah. So what is your role specifically at Unsecret? And if you wouldn't mind kind of walking the audience through what Unsecret is, I'd love to pause here and, and do that. Yeah,
1: um, it's kind of funny because I've I've made it very convoluted. Like in, inadvertently, I've I've made it a, a a little bit of a convoluted thing because Unsecret is both like an artist moniker that I use, and then Unsecret Music is kind of an umbrella for other projects that I'm either overseeing or, or other artists that I'm collaborating with, um, other artists that I'm that I have signed that like are are signed to Unsecret Music kind of as a label. Um so unsecret is kind of this word that I've just kind of branded to myself I guess in, in order to say like hey if, if if it's anything that has unsecret as attached to it that probably means I'm involved in some way. Um so I love it. <laughs> again, yeah, it's 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 like um you know again it gets to be a little confusing like what's what <laughs> but I'm I'm just going with it and we'll hey, see what happens.
0: it works and it's almost a little bit mysterious so I think it kind of fits yeah. in with the brand.
1: Yeah. You know for the artist stuff the the website is actually whoisunsecret.com which I guess I'm like giving away or, or, or.
0: <laughs> it's but. it's brilliant and I love the fact that um, as you were speaking about your musical fingerprint that you're combining two things these days that don't always get combined. I think that's just incredibly creative. I love to see collisions like that that don't always don't always happen and I guess that leads into my next question. Um, which is, what do you think is driving sort of the copycat approach in the musical landscape? I think especially as it relates to TV and cinema scores, what do you think is driving that currently?
1: Well, you know, for, for film and television in particular, um, there are, there are c- certain things that are almost needed uh, by the kind of end user. You know, it's like you've got an editor or a director who... You know, and those few things are that, like, okay, they need a sparse beginning, uh, they need a dramatic ending, and then they kind of need these edit points, right? So it's like, these days, that ends up being, like, these single piano hits, or, you know, these big kind of horn blasts, or these kind of, like... So there's lots of things like that that are as much um, kind of effects, you know, they're, they're kind of as much, like, for for use in the editing booth as they are for some kind of musical purpose. So I do think that that, um, it it gives you a a little bit, it limits the palette just a little bit when you're kind of like doing music that that has a very specific utility, you know? Uh, So I think the thing to kind of work around, or the thing that I try to work around is to say like, okay, you know, are there ways that we can do the things they need? Can we add these utility pieces, but then, freshen them up and then what else can we do you know like how can we go past that if we're working within some kind of a palette some kind of a box um you know what do we do to make it as fresh as we can and um so i you know i I think that that is part of it you know it's it's kind of the same thing with um you know i think about this a little bit with like the the three minute song idea you know and you could look at that and say like well why you know why is that like why have we arrived at this place where most pop songs are around three minutes, you know? And I think one person would look at it and say like, well, it's just a copycat thing. Another person would look at it and say like, oh, is this some kind of evolution of songwriting where we've just found that three minutes is about as much as you need for a song? You know, is this actually, it's like, actually like a good thing. Have we actually kind of come to a point after all this time where three minutes is, is like just enough, but like holds back just enough, like, does that just work better for us as humans than a than a 6-minute song or a but, 1 yeah. song? Yeah.
0: It's like the bite-sized song.
1: Exactly. So, I don't know. So, there's all these kind of things that like I think in in one respect you could look and say those are limitations. Those are like things that we've really kind of fallen short on. And then but then you can look at it this other way and say like, well, maybe that's a really great form. You know, it's like we paint on a canvas we don't just paint on the grass like why is that well it's like a canvas is a much better like place to paint than the grass so you know it's like it's 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 arguments like that that i think like sometimes uh, it's it's really easy to get caught up in kind of these the limitations Uh, but for me like the our kind of greater and more fun conversation is like okay now that we know that we're working within these parameters what can we do you know like what can we do to make that as good as we can
0: Um, So, you mentioned earlier um, that when you were newly married, um, you thought about maybe pursuing a more traditional uh, vocation, but kind of just knew that really, in the end, you needed to pursue your creative uh, musical career and writing career in order to be truly um, happy. I know that that comes with a lot of risks, because a steady paycheck can be a bit tricky in that realm. As over the years, I know you've said community has been huge, what has been... um, Something that you personally do in order to keep that steady paycheck, um, and do you just have to constantly work, 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 <laughs> or um, have you learned something that's really sort of helped ease some of that stress?
1: You know, I where I, I feel like I read this quote every once in a while where it's like, uh, you know, being self-employed is is what working twice the hours for half the pay or or something but you know but there's this trade-off it's like you you have i don't know if it's control but you do have some amount of ability to say yes to things to say no to things um you know it was interesting there was one day years ago years and years ago i walked into a coffee shop here in town and i saw a guy that that i'd known he was a really great um uh music engineer like worked in studios and everything and did mixing and and uh, and he was he was leaving the music industry to go do a corporate job, and he did that for a number of years. And then I literally ran into him at the same coffee shop like two years later, and um, I was talking to him. And I was like, "Dude, you're you know you're back in town. Like, what's going on?" And he was like, "He's like, we made a decision. He's like, his wife was there, and he's like, we just sat down and looked at life and said like, okay, are we willing to?" like have this other creative life that we'd rather have knowing that we'll have, you know, half the pay, maybe less, maybe nothing at times. And he said, we just decided to do that. Like knowing that that was kind of the way we wanted our lives to look like. And, and it was just like, it was the first time I talked with somebody where they had uh, the opportunity for more money instantly. Like it was already there or kind of go this other way and I, it just made me think to myself, like, okay, what would I, what would I choose there? Like, would I choose uh, this this life where I've, you know, I've got more money and more stability, but maybe I don't get to do the things I want to do, or do I choose this life where I do the things I want to do, but very unstable? And you know, year one might be great, year two might be horrible, year three might be somewhere in between. And I, I don't, I don't even know if I necessarily had. A total choice I mean I just felt so drawn to the creative life I couldn't really help myself (laughs) you know I will say like I think some of it is just being around long enough to see the fruits of of your labor it's uh, you know for for so many people I've heard in Nashville it's like the average person has about two to three years to kind of get to that next tier or they just don't make it so in other words they land here in town they pursue music at some level and then they either run out of money and patience and time and what, you know and resources, whatever, and just have to leave, or they graduate to that next tier and then they're kind of you know off to the races. Um, so I think for a lot of people, they just maybe don't give it enough time. you know I'm, I've, I've done this now for, for more than 20 years, and I feel like I'm just now, beginning to understand some things about it you know and and I'm like wow it took took, you know I think Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours is like the first stage it's like tier one you know and then it's not until like tier 10 that you start to really get you know a sense of like actually what is happening and how to do something and and go from there so I feel like some of it is just sticking with it long enough to see it actually um, take root and turn into something.
0: That's a great point. It's the marathon. And out of curiosity, does is your wife also an artist, or has, does she work, or has she pursued more of a traditionally steady career?
1: Yeah, she she's very you know she's artistic. Um, she's uh, you know has amazing thoughts about things, and and we have awesome conversations about all kinds of things. and she was you know wonderful singer in college. She though I, I think I think if we were both like full time artist people, it would just be mayhem in our home.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: She's so much more centered and has things together. And, and I'm so much more of a kind of scatterbrain. And, and you know, if you saw my desk right now, it's like cables everywhere, little post-it notes everywhere. Like, I can't quite help myself in, in that way. I'm just a bit of a, a whirlwind, you know? With, <laughs> I love it. She just got her masters in counseling and so she's a very you know that says something about her like she you know she loves that she you know it's 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 probably dangerous for me now because she'll probably stare at me across the kitchen table be like what do you mean when you say that though matt what do you mean it's like
0: (laughs) she sounds amazing i love it so much what do you do when you feel stuck creatively i I, I'm, i'm
1: gonna answer maybe this in in two ways um in a more general sense I, I usually have enough projects going on at any one time that I can jump to the one that's interesting to me in the moment. So for instance, I, I, you know I might have 10 songs in various stages at any one time. So I'll you know on my computer, I'll bring up one of those songs and I'll play a little bit of it. Um, and this sounds weird, but it's like if it starts speaking to me creatively, I'll dive in and I'll just stay there and I'll like go with it. But if it's not in that moment, I'll just go to the next one or go to the next one because they all need to get done. You know, at some point they all need to get done. But um, and I'll, I'll generally just kind of find one that's like speaking to me kind of emotionally in that moment. It's like it's, you know, it's brighter, it's happier, it's darker, it's denser, like whatever that thing is. Um, so that's one way for me is to just like listen to my own emotion. What am I excited about in the moment? Um, I mean, there's other times, too, where I'll flip through all 10 songs and be like, man, none of this is working for me right now. And so I'll grab, uh, you know, I'll grab my laptop and go somewhere else and work on a little story idea or script idea or or something else. And that'll trigger other synapses in my brain, you know. So um, I I feel like I allow myself to wander a bit just knowing that all these things can turn into things and will uh, it's it's always with the knowledge that that everything will get done in its right time. So as long as like I'm not just squandering that, you know, um, sometimes it could look like it. Like I might be sitting with a keyboard trying to figure out like some new sounds or and so on one level that may just look very experimental. But I know that that's also part of the process. It's like um, that can be just as valuable uh, as, as anything else. Um, so that's one answer. The other answer, though, is that sometimes there are things just that absolutely have to get done. You know, it's like a limited clock, limited amount of time. And those are the times that I've realized all I need to do is sit there in front of the computer for eight more hours and just try. Like it's like that's when it really feels like work. You know, it's like we you're just sitting there like it's like a hammer and a chisel and a piece of granite and you're just chipping away. And what i what I find is that maybe for the first six hours, I might be chipping off like like millimeter sized you know chips at a time. like it might be just little bits, and then I'll get that one crack where half the granite falls away and I see it. you know, I see the face. It's like I see the like shape that I'm trying to create. Um, and then it's like game on, you know so so that's that's exciting too, and I think I think some of that is birthed by. Uh, you know, having done it for enough years, exactly, that I know there's an end result, you know, I know we're going to get there.
0: Yeah. Have you gotten to the point where you just know when something is good enough? You know, you've had enough uh, trial and error and um, have worked with enough creatives that you at this point in your career, you know, okay, it's good enough. I can share this out. Um, I can see if this goes anywhere. Or do you still feel like you have to vet it a little bit? Um, Where are you at in that? And that's, process
1: well you know i would say vet vetting for sure in that i very much value all the opinions around me so it's it's never with the idea that like my opinion has to win or that my best or or you know i always like want to listen to that feedback and, and understand like where the shortcomings are or um and, you know, but having said that, I will say that um, early on, you know, I'd walk into a room and play something for somebody, you know, like an A&R person or a label person or a publisher. And they'd be like, yeah, it's just not good enough. You know, go back go back and try again. And so you go through those motions for years and years and years. Um, now, you know, I would, I would say a lot of the time uh, when I'll go into places, and this is just from having enough experience doing it. My bar is usually going to be set higher than a lot of the people around me. Just it's just kind of an experience thing. It's like um, they're still going to have very very valuable input. You know, they're going to have an objectivity to it that I don't. And so, um, but a lot of times in terms of the the quality level, um, you know, I'm going to have to set the bar really high for myself. Um, and, and maybe this is a good way to explain it too. You know, when you first come into it. Um, it's difficult, difficult to kind of articulate what you, what you really want. You know, like what makes something more professional than something amateur? Like how do you put that into words? But I think like over time you, be, you build a vocabulary for it. You know, you have this nomenclature for what it is to build something that sounds professional, you know, or reads professionally or whatever. And so, um, and, and there's people that have done it for 20 years later, you know, longer than me, that have an even greater lexicon than i do for those things so you know i think i think that's part of it too is just building that vocabulary of of what makes something um really great you know what what makes good art like what to you you know i mean your your idea of good art like what does that look like and how do you achieve it
0: that's brilliant i love it becoming a communicating the uncommunicatable. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, totally. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Now, I love that you are, we've talked about this a little bit, both a writer um, and a musician. Um, when it comes to writing, um, what do you think is your least favorite part of the writing process? There are parts, I'm sure, that come really easily and are fun and exciting, but is there a part that you really struggle to get around?
1: Um, you know, I think, I think one of the, I think one of the difficult parts is is this kind of middle stage you know it's like in the beginning it's it's so interesting and, and like you're just you're accumulating all this new information you know for me like there's kind of a research stage when I write like I love to um, grab from real-world information and, and go to places and there's a real discovery period that occurs and that's just enlightening and enriching and exciting um, and so then you like, you have all this stuff. And so it's, it's very kind of emotionally uplifting. Uh, but then you have to gather that all all up and begin to kind of um, put it into actual words and pages and sentences. And, and so that could sometimes, that. yeah, it's <laughs> like, also you realize like, okay, that's great. But that's like a mess. You know, that's just a mess of stuff. How do I then like take that and, and make it palatable? Um, that's You know, that's the work part, I feel like, and you start hitting the roadblocks and you realize all the things that don't work. Um, As well as, you know, I feel like the other thing is this multiple worlds idea. It's like you can see that the story can be, you know, conveyed in 12 different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, too, that, like, you know, I was having a a discussion with a friend of mine about we were looking at at doing a story, and, and we'd conceived, like, six wholly different ways to tell the story, and we were like, well, which one's best? And we kind of realized, like, any of them actually could work. Like, any of them could could totally work. It was all in the execution. You know, it was all going to be in in the execution. And so we looked at, it and we're just, you know, we were just like, well, what excites us the most? Let, let's just roll with that and see where it goes. Oh, I like
0: okay. that.
1: So that's tricky. You know, I think I think uh, I was even reading the other day in in some book about writing and creativity that that we oftentimes kind of walk right past that. That like. There there really is a necessity for excitement for you. You know, you need to feel excited about it or you're just gonna like get to, you know, page two hundred of your three hundred page book and lose interest and like decide not to finish it. Um so but I do think that's tricky, to go from that kind of initial inciting incident type, you know, here's what gets me up in the morning about this idea, and then all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, this is actual work. Like I <laughs> I have to string together a lot of words before this is going to be done.
0: (laughs) I love it. Do you think of yourself as, as a finisher or do you um, start a lot of things and then get to that point where you're like, this isn't working. I'm not as excited about this as I was previously. I'm going to try something different. Do you have a lot of sort of half finished um, projects that you've wisely maybe set aside in favor of something that does excite you more?
1: You know, I mean, I feel like so much of it is, is just actually seeing it to the end and, and, You know, when I first started doing some book writing, I remember I had a friend, uh, an author friend who told me they're like, that's that's basically like what weeds out 99 percent of of um, possible novelists is just slogging through it. You know, it's just actually reaching that last page like most writers never reach the last chapter, you know, and so if you can reach the last chapter. That's, that's huge. I mean, that's just a huge part of it. Most people never reach that stage because it requires, um, a Herculean amount of effort. You know, there's really, I mean, I would say, you know, working, working in different mediums, books are, books are difficult. I, you know, I really admire great novelists because, um, getting to that last chapter and that last page is just, it's a Herculean effort. And, um, and it's very uh there's there's a lot of alone time you know it's like there's there's so many of these enterprises music and movies and other things where you can um you know you can offset some of the duties like you can say okay this needs to be done by you over here and uh, i need you to take care of this over here but with with books you know at least in that initial kind of first draft stage it's just you and a blank page for a long time long time um, that's that's really that's a really difficult mountain to climb
0: have you found um ways for both your love of music and your love of writing to collide yet or is that something that you're working on you know it's
1: it's interesting i i feel like i keep i keep looking for ways to uh, they do cross-pollinate but i but i don't know that i've found some kind of middle ground some kind of place where both countries touch perfectly. Um, only because, you know, when I, so I'd been doing music for a while when I decided to, you know, take this foray into uh, novels. And my, I feel like when I uh, first started, you know, venturing into the the novelist world and, and writing books, I thought, I presupposed that it would be very similar creatively to music that there would be kind of some similar process or that it would feel similar, you know, the same or that my brain would like, I don't know. I just, I thought there'd be all these places where afterward I'd be like, Oh man, it's exactly like doing music. But what I've found is that it feels very different and it feels like a very different, this is strange, but I, I would, I would venture that if like somebody were to connect a bunch of electrodes to my head that it would look very different what was firing when I'm doing music as opposed to to writing books. Um and so I do think, you know, there's there's been places that I've been able to drag skills from one into the other. For example, um you know, I think with with writing there's so much kind of Editing and the editing stage is so vital and so important. Um, that's something that I hadn't realized was needed more in music. That I was able to bring back into music. And so, you know, sometimes when we sit down to write a song and we're looking at it, um, I'll put on that hat for a moment. You know, I'll be like, well, what's what's the editor say? You know, like how could we how could we say this more clearly or you know, this, this lyric here, is there, you know, is there a different word? You know, it's like, I, um, I I love to read poetry. And I read one time, it's like, poetry is so powerful, because there's, there's so much kind of precision to the language of it, you know, and not precision in in like the lawyerly kind of way, you know, like, um, more of like, what does it emote, you know, what are the connotations of that? Word, you know, of the of the consonants of the vowels, like all. Oh. So I th- I think there's um, that's something that's in, um, you know, book writing that that editing that's kind of I found to be really fun to bring back into music. And then conversely, like I think the other way around is, um, you know, somebody told me one time or I read somewhere I can't remember which that uh, you know writing a novel writing a book. Um, is so much about this discovery of rhythms, you know, and that oftentimes, oftentimes that you, you, you find that um, people that write books and people that write novels are readers, voracious readers, you know, they, and and in one sense that makes sense, you're like, oh, yeah, of course they would be if they want to do that. But the other side of it is that they read so much that they begin to internalize a rhythm, like a pattern, like an unspeakable pattern that they can kind of feel. And, and as they're able to then take that from just ingesting that rhythm to then, like, uh, spilling out onto, like, a page for themselves, there's that process. So that really made sense to me because I could feel the words, you know. I could feel this kind of rhythm of words uh, in a very different sense than, than, like, when you're writing, you know, a song. You know, that's, that's an obvious rhythm. You know, there's an actual beat having you know happening most of the time uh but there's this kind of like um very different uh long patterns you know sometimes it's even hard to describe but there's definitely rhythms that are occurring on the page whenever you sit down to read an author and so discovering that was really interesting too
0: no that that's that feels like really practical advice uh, but is there anything before we close this out that you'd like to plug any exciting projects that maybe are already out in the wild people can consume that you'd like to talk about and where people can find those?
1: Yeah. I mean, musically, um, I'm I'm really devoting a lot of time and attention to my Unseeker project right now. And it's, it's just, you know, kind of in, in the beginning phases. Um, so if you go to, you know, Spotify and, and plug in, Unsecret, um, you know, you'll you'll be able to find my songs there, and I'm going to be releasing um, a number of songs uh, this year, kind of through that platform. I mean, it'll be it'll be everywhere, um, but that's you know definitely one place that that I feel like is really fun uh, to be able to, to find that stuff. Uh, you know, Twitter and Instagram, you know, probably I'm on all of them though. I I think Instagram's really fun though, and and I'll probably be doing. Uh, more in those places later on this year
0: sounds good all right well, I'll share those uh, handles up in the show notes but Matt this has been really fantastic it was so much juicy information I loved hearing your story thanks for hanging out
1: cool thank you so much I, I, I love it